Let's open in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to begin a new series today. We're going to be spending our summer in the Psalms. And I love, love, love the book of Psalms. The Psalms are really like a spiritual garden for the Christian. This is the place that we go in our Bibles to cultivate a life of worship, a life of prayer and of praise and repentance. We do this in the book of Psalms. But the first two Psalms that we're going to talk about this week and next week really serve as a gate to the 150 psalms that are in our Psalter. They serve as a gate to remind us that psalms are not the place that we go to pick what looks pleasant and leave what looks unpleasant. All of the psalms in their entirety need to be read and understood and believed and prayed back to God in the context of a covenant. In the context of the fact that there is a king and we dwell in his kingdom. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the gate to the psalm. Psalm 1 reminds us we live as citizens of a kingdom. We live in a covenant, in a personal relationship with a holy God. Psalm 2 will remind us that God is king. And so these next two weeks, we're going to see the gate that guards the garden that we're going to spend the rest of the summer in. With that in mind, let me read for us Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers." The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray and I plead that you would allow us to understand this psalm, that you would allow us to see what it looks like to live in a covenant with you, the joy and the treasure of being known by you. And so, Father, I pray pray that you would attend to us this morning as we study your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Blessed is the man or blessed is the person is the way the book of Psalms opens. And this word blessed is kind of a slippery word. It's hard to translate into English. And so some people opt for happy or fortunate or privileged. But it doesn't matter how you translate the word because the idea is all the same. This life of blessing or happiness or fortune or privilege only comes in a covenant. It only comes in a relationship with the living God. We talked about last week from Romans 6 that if we come to faith in Christ, our old self is put to death and we take on a new self. We are resurrected to a brand new life in Jesus Christ. And this is the life that the Psalms are speaking to. This is the kind of covenant that the Psalms are speaking to. And so blessing is all over the beginning and the end of the Psalter. This is really the language of the beatitude, right? Jesus used this same kind of language in the Sermon on the Mount when he said the beatitudes. Blessed is the person who lives this life with me. And so in book one of the Psalms, we open with eight Psalms of blessing, eight beatitude Psalms. And we end in book five with 11 Psalms of blessing, 11 beatitudes for the life of blessing that comes in a life with God. 
Now, I entitled the sermon uh, A Picture of Privilege because my tendency really is to break this thing down into kind of an academic outline and contrast the righteous and the wicked. Now, that contrast is certainly here, but we have to remember that the Psalms are poetry. This is a poem, and this particular poem is laid out before us to entice us. This is drawing us in, and this is painting a picture for us of the life of blessing that is found in the Lord. Now, advertisers get the power of enticing us with our imagination, right? We go to advertising to see the power of this. If I drink light beer, I'm going to have spontaneous parties on the beach with beautiful people. I'm enticed by that vision. Now, Psalm 1 is not going to be able to offer us that, but dare we say that it offers us something more, something better. I want us to to delve deeper into this picture of privilege, this picture of walking with the Lord. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. A blessed life distances itself from other lifestyles. A, A blessed life begins to disentangle itself from other ways of living. Now, what are we talking about here? Is this, is this a geographical distancing? Are we saying we should get away from certain places and only spend time in certain places? In other words, should we spend more time at the farmer's market and less time at Sharkey's and Five Points? Is this a geographical uh, indicator that it's pointing us to? Or is it personal? Is it talking about people? I want you to spend less time with this kind of person and more time with this kind of person. Well, friends, we spent nine months in the Gospels, and if anybody blew this distinction out of the water about where we go and who we spend time with, it was Jesus, right? Much to the chagrin of all his followers, he spent time in bad places with bad people. He dwelled in Samaria. He crossed over the Jordan River and spent time in Galilee regions. He made merry with the sinner and the prostitute and the tax collector. So let us not reduce Psalm 1-1 to a place and a people because Jesus blows those categories wide open. Actually, it would be much easier if we could do that, right? If we could say to each other, hey, don't spend time with this person. Don't go to that place. Don't watch this movie. Don't read that author. But that's not what Psalm 1-1 is talking about. It is warning us of these specific things that it says. It's the wicked's counsel. It's the sinner's way. It's the scoffer's seat that is to be avoided at all costs. It's these things, it's these ways, it's these ideas that lead us to stray. Wise living is not easy as the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes will make abundantly clear. It is a lifetime of incremental small changes that we see. Verse 2 is going to say we are going to spend a lifetime associating ourselves with God and his word. But verse 1 I want to see is we are going to spend a lifetime disassociating ourselves from evil or unwise voices. These voices come to us from a hundred different places and they change the direction of our life inch by inch, degree by another. Now, Julie and I got to get get away for two, two weeks ago. We got to get away for a week. And during that week that we were away in the mountains, we largely unplugged from any kind of media surface 
uh, sources, and it was just glorious. I mean, it was wonderful to not be connected to YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and TV and all of these other medias that, that inundate us, anything that's on a screen that inundates us. And it caused us to begin to ask the question, how do these ways shape us? How do these media sources shape the way we're living our life? I'm convinced that media is to us what, what waves of the ocean are like to a beach. I mean, think about this. Waves that you see in the ocean are so fleeting. They're so quick. They're so unmemorable. You would have to be hard-pressed to think back to last summer and remember a specific wave that you saw on the beach, right? I mean, you saw thousands of them, and something pretty traumatic or amazing would have happened with a particular wave for you to even remember last year what it was like. I think that's the same way that media comes to us. It's, it's fleeting, it's here for a time, but it's very unmemorable. You would be hard-pressed to think back a year ago and remember a blog or a TV episode or a tweet that you saw that has stuck with you for an entire year. These things, they, they don't last. They're fleeting. But the danger, of course, is believing the lie that that which is unmemorable does not have lasting impact. Thousands of unmemorable waves hit the beach and shape the contour of America. Our country looks different because of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of waves. And I wonder if the same thing is true of us sitting in front of a screen, of us wave after wave of Twitter feed and Instagram and Facebook posts that we are shaped in ways that we don't even know. Usually when we sit down in front of a screen, we ask moral questions. Is what I'm about to watch too sexual? Is it too violent? Is it going to have filthy language? Those are good moral questions to ask. We're asking, is this right or wrong for me to watch? But Professor Ellen Davis, who makes a similar point from this psalm, says, why don't we ask the question, what is it costing me to sit here? Isn't that a great question to ask when we park ourselves in front of the TV? What's it going to cost me to sit here? What's the opportunity cost involved in watching or reading or dwelling on this thing? Because that's not asking a moral question. That's asking a wisdom question. Is this the best use of my time? Is this a wise thing for me to do? What is it costing me? Is it time with my family? Is it staring into my spouse's eyes? Is it spending time reading God's word? Is it sleep that I desperately need? All of these things are gifts that God gives his covenant children. And all of these things can be missed if we begin to associate ourselves and inundate ourselves with voices that aren't the Lord's voice. I'm not saying it's wrong to do any one of these things. I'm saying as a Christian, we must be critical about the ways we spend our time and the voices we allow ourselves to hear. The blessed person makes wise choices about who and what she associates with, but just as importantly, she makes wise choices about who she disassociates with, about what she disentangles herself from. Verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. A blessed life gravitates towards the Lord. Here's why I think Psalm 1 and 2 are so important. They are the gate that guards the garden. They keep the passerby from plucking a moral tidbit off a choice vine and taking that with them where they go. The verse 1 that we just read, that's not controversial to anybody. 
doesn't matter what your religion is. If it's Islam or atheism, nobody is going to be scandalized by verse 1, that the life of wisdom, wisdom is to disentangle ourselves from foolishness. That's not controversial to anyone, but the Psalms don't operate that way. They're not fortune cookies. They're not chicken soup for the soul. They're not inspirational cat posters. All of those things are generic and impersonal. But the Psalms are deeply, almost scandalously personal because they're talking about a life lived in a covenant with God. Verse 2 makes emphatically clear that the blessed person is not just turning away from ways and seats and lifestyles, but they're turning towards something. And better, they're turning towards someone. They're turning away from these things and they're finding their sheer delight in the Lord and on his law. I mean, what better news is there for us? All of us are restless to find this kind of satisfaction. And Psalm 1 is saying, you can find it. There is one in whom you can find this satisfaction for your soul. There is one in whom you can delight yourself fully and freely. What great news for the Christian that this all comes in a covenant. Verse 6 says that such a person is known by God. This is what we experience as the life of a believer. Being known by God. The picture of privilege finds its focus in the Lord. A life transformed by Jesus. And so verse 2 goes on to say that we have access to understanding this. We have access to having our imagination in the Lord built up when we spend day and night meditating on his word. God gives us his word, the Bible, and it is a great and it is a deep book. 11 and 1,189 chapters, 31,000 verses, over 800,000 words. This is a hefty homework assignment for the Christian. But God is drawing us in and saying, when you read this word, when you see the overarching story, when you hear the promises that are made, when you hear the commands and the exhortations, you are really pressing deeper and deeper into a life with me, a life with the Lord. I love the word meditate here because this was written at a time when Christians or followers of God did not have written access to God's word. You didn't own a copy of the scriptures for yourself. You had to go to temple and hear the synagogue read. And the only way you had access to God's word in your home and in your workplace is if you memorized it, right? And then you could take it with you wherever you went. And so the word that's, that's used here, meditate, is really similar to the word murmur. And the idea is for the person who has memorized God's word and is murmuring or reciting under their breath God's word throughout their day. Now, isn't that encouraging to us? Because in first read of this, we think to ourselves, with all the craziness in my schedule, with my workplace, with my home life, with errands I have to run and family I have to attend to, I just don't have time day and night to sit in front of my desk with, with my Old Testament Hebrew text and my commentaries and study this thing in the way it ought to be studied. And that's true. But God is saying this book is far too valuable for you to leave on your desk. Study it memorize it and take it with you in your life and your workplace and with your family. Meditate, murmur on this thing and think about it. What we're after here is an animated orthodoxy. 
What we're after here is a study of God's word that is so deep and so fresh and so abiding that it indwells us and it changes us. It changes the direction of our life from one degree of glory to another. The word fills us and it will do that in us as we become students with us. We disentangle ourselves from other kind of voices and we fully entangle and embrace ourselves in God's voice. I want to close with the picture that, that psalm gives, this psalm gives us right in the center from verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Now it doesn't take much imagination to see the contrast between verse 3 of this tree and verse 4 of chaff. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, of course, is that casing that's inedible to humans that is on a kernel of grain. You've got to get rid of the chaff so you can get at the grain. Now, my wife and I spent two years in India. We lived there, and I traveled extensively from our major city into rural villages. And every time around harvest time, as I was driving from village to village, I noticed that um, villagers would take the grain that they had just harvested, and they'd put it on the road, on that single lane road that I was driving on, and they'd set it out and they'd sit by it. And, and I thought that this was their way to do business. They were selling their grain. And so very respectfully, as I approached village after village and this big, you know, six inches deep of grain on the road, I would drive off the road and through the rocks and get around this and drive back on the road so I wouldn't spoil their grain. And I'd go to the next person and I'd drive off and drive back on. I thought, this is such a hassle. And I did that again and again and again. Every harvest time, every grain, driving off, driving around these people, until finally, I was driving through a village, and an Indian brother was sitting with me in the car, and I got up to this first person who was sitting by their grain, and I awkwardly got off and had to drive around this person and get back on the road and keep going. And he turns to me, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, they've got their grain in the middle of the road. I don't want to drive over it and make it dirty. And they said, this is the way they thresh their grain. They've put it on the road specifically for you to drive on it and crush this and get the chaff off the grain. <laughs> And I thought, all these Indians are thinking, what an arrogant American. He's got his fancy rich car, and he won't even drive on our grain. Um, but this is the process that you need to do with your grain. You need to somehow thresh this stuff and get the chaff off of it, and then you winnow it. You throw it up in the air, and of course, the grain is heavier. It falls to the ground, and the chaff blows away. It, it, it ceases to matter. It goes away. The life of the wicked... The life of a person who is bent inward on themselves is like fleeting chaff. Now I want to pause here for a moment because this is a chilling description of the wicked. A wicked person, they matter deeply to God. God loves his created beings. He longs to draw them into a relationship with himself. A wicked person matters deeply to God, but a wicked life is worthless. It is meaningless. 
It has no value. It is like chaff that gets thrown up in the wind and blows away, never to be seen again. Every human being who has ever lived just wants to matter, right? They want to do something and be somebody. They want their personal life to extend beyond themselves. And Psalm 1-4 says, If you choose a life of wickedness, if you flee from your Creator, if you bend your life inward to yourself, your life doesn't matter. It's like chaff. It blows away. It's unmemorable. It does more harm than it does good. This is like Jesus speaking to his brothers in John chapter 7 before the Feast of Booze when he says to them, they're urging him to go to the Feast of Booze, and he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What Jesus is saying to them is, I've ordered my life around the creator. What he says, I do. What he, what he calls me to say, I say. My entire life is tied up in him, and I do whatever he calls me. I go wherever he leads. Your life is not so. You don't follow your creator, and it doesn't matter what you do when, because your time is always here. Your life is like a chaff that is going to blow away. It's not going to matter. But that is not the life of the blessed. This person, this blessed person in a covenant relationship with God, and this is surprising to many of us who feel like our lives are not amounting to much so far, that life is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now this psalm is being written to people who live in a semi-arid region. It's almost like a desert. And you better believe that every single person hearing this psalm knows what this means. If you're traveling in a desert region, you're not going to pull aside for a rock. You're not going to stop and look at a bramble or a cactus. But you better believe if you see a tree springing up out of this region and you see fruit on that tree, you are going to get into a dead run to see that thing. That's remarkable. That is a prospering tree in the desert. That is the picture of privilege of a Christian. Look, you're springing up like a tree that's by a stream of water. Ellen Davis says that the Christian is not ostentatious. They're not prideful. They're not showy. But they're definitely not unnoticeable. People notice a person who reflects Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2. People notice someone who is disentangling themselves from one kind of lifestyle and throwing themselves fully into another lifestyle. That's like a breath of fresh air. That is noticeable for a person ordering their life around God's word. If you're in the rat race, if you're here to succeed and accomplish and acquire and climb the corporate ladder and you meet somebody who's not playing by those rules, you better believe you're going to notice that, that person. If you care so much about your image and having the picture of a perfect family and you meet somebody who's transparent about their weaknesses and their shortcomings, you better believe you're going to notice that person. Walking with Jesus in any culture is about as inconspicuous as a fruitful tree growing up dead center in the middle of the desert. People long to see that. People want to see that. People want to be a part of that. And that's the picture of privilege. That's what God is saying he's doing on our behalf. Psalm 1 holds this out to entice us. It says, look friends, 
God is offering you what you long for. He's offering you to get away from the tidbits of this culture and the voices that, you, that inundate you, that lead you astray, and inviting you to press on deeper into who he is and what he provides for you. And in doing so, you will find your life springing up and bearing fruit in a life that God has called to give you. That's the picture of privilege. That's what he invites us to. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want more and more of this. We want to find ourselves holy in you. We don't enjoy the things that we feast on every single week. We want to be apart from them, and we know that we need your Holy Spirit to do this. And so, Father, I pray that you would that you would really free us from these seats, from these councils, from these ways, and you would allow us to dive wholly and fully into you. And I ask that you would do this in your Son's name. Amen.